Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 98, The Rift. This week we're talking about the rift that's opening up between the Saxons and the Empire. For 80 years Saxony had been the center of imperial power and the Ottonians had been supportive of the Saxon nobles' policy vis-à-vis the Wends and versus Poland. All that is about to change. The new Emperor Henry II, though a direct descendant of Henry the Fowler, was no Saxon. For three generations, his family had been Dukes of Bavaria, and all that exposure to the despised Southerners had rubbed off. The Saxons were too divided to feel their own candidate, but that does not mean they wanted Henry II. And for good reason. The new administration drives a 180-degree turn in imperial policy versus Poland and versus the Slavic tribes in the marches. Before we start, I would like you to know that the History of the Germans podcast is advertising-free thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Freddy DeLille, Britt K, David von Gee and Alexei K who've already signed up. Last week, we left off with Emperor Otto III travelling to Gnezno and crowning, or not crowning, Boleslav the Brave as king. But what he definitely did do was elevate Gnezno to an archbishopric, which cut the feet off the archbishopric of Magdeburg's claim to be in charge of all missionary activity in the East. Or this was part of the repositioning of the relationship between Poland and the Empire in the wake of the Slavic Rebellion of 983 and the formation of the Liuzzi and Abudrites federations, that partially united the Slavic tribes between the Elbe and the Oder. To keep them down, the empire was reliant on the Duke of Poland, and Poland's new ruler, Boleslav the Brave, used the situation as leverage to move from mere vassal and duke to a new status, as friend and ally of the emperor, or maybe as king of Poland. Before we get into the story of how the relationship develops further, there are two other topics we need to discuss. The first is the situation in Denmark and the other is the succession of Otto III. Let's start with Denmark. Last time we checked in on them, King Harald Bluetooth had used the chaos following the catastrophic defeat of Otto II at the Battle of Capo Colonna and the succession crisis following Otto II's death to retake the Danewirk and throw off the yoke of imperial vassalage. But Harald Bluetooth could not enjoy his success for long. He had a son, who may have even been the godson of Otto I, called Swain Otto. That son had been exiled together with his mother when Harald Bluetooth decided he fancied some well-endowed Slavic princess. To no one's surprise, that turned out to have been a mistake, because Swain came back, several times, to claim what he believed to be his rightful inheritance. In 986 he was successful. He defeated his father, who died of wounds sustained in the decisive battle. Adam von Bremen reports that Swain, though baptized a Christian, gave up his faith and reverted back to the old gods. Not only that, but he also initiated widespread persecution of Christians across Denmark. For that, he was supposedly punished by the Swedes, who, according to Adam von Bremen, conquered Denmark with an army in number like the sand on the seashore. What followed was 14 years of exile that only ended when the Swedish king died and Swain returned to Christianity. That story used to be generally accepted version, but is now debunked. 
Archaeologists have found several churches built on Swain's command during the period he was allegedly living in exile. There is also no record in Swedish sagas of a conquest of Denmark, something they would surely not have left out. What is more likely is that the Archbishop of Hamburg and his chronicler had been upset when Swain placed Danish-speaking clerics from England into Danish bishoprics. If that is what happened, and indeed these clerics had been responsible for missionary success in Norway and Sweden, then the claim of the Archbishop of Hamburg to be the primate of all Scandinavian churches was very much in doubt. So the more likely scenario is that Swain, who now no longer calls himself Swain Otto, but is better known as Swain Folkbeard, ruled continuously from 986 to his death in 1014. Now, If the name Swain Folkbeard sounds familiar, the answer is yes. This is the same Swain Folkbeard who first raided and then conquered England after King Ethelred the Unready had committed the St. Bryce massacres. He is also the father of King Knut, ruled over Denmark, Norway and England, but not the waves. I'm not the one to tell this story. I leave that to the History of England, the British History Podcast, and obviously Michael Shankman from the Scandinavian History Podcast. And here is the man himself. Hi everyone, my name is Michael Schenkman and I'm the host of the Scandinavian History Podcast. Since you tuned in to listen to an episode of History of the Germans, I guess you're into history podcasts. And if you've ever wondered what's going on north of the German border, in the lands of fierce Vikings, toiling peasants and scheming courtiers, then don't hesitate to check out the Scandinavian History Podcast. You can find it wherever top-notch podcasts such as History of the Germans, are found. What interests us here in terms of Danish history is only what Swain does on the border in Schleswig. And the answer is nothing. Adam von Bremen mentions some Viking raids, raids that were so threatening that Bremen allegedly received a brand new city wall and the most valuable relics had been brought south but there is no attempt at pushing the border. Hedeby, the all-important trading city near Schleswig, was back in Danish hands, and as we heard, the Danish king was no longer a vassal of the empire, and the Danish bishoprics were outside the authority of Hamburg. In that scenario, Swain Folkbeard could see not much point in opening up another frontier that would only weaken his ability to conquer England. And on the other side... Why did the empire not try to bring the Danish king back to heel? Nobody says anything, but the simple answer is that the delta in military capabilities on land between the empire and its neighbours was no longer as wide as it had been 50 years earlier. If they cannot tame the Slavs in the northern marches, how would they be able to defeat the mighty Danes? And there was another issue. The empire was disunited. The Emperor Otto III had died very young, most likely from a combination of mild illness and excessive religious exertions. He had not been married and had no offspring. He was also his father's only son, whilst his sister and many of his female relatives had joined religious orders. There left only one relative in the male line, Henry, Duke of Bavaria, son of Henry the Quarrelsome, abductor of little Otto III and grandson of another Henry, brother and bane of Otto I. Henry was of the view that he should be elected king and future emperor on the strength of his name and his position as Duke of Bavaria. But not everyone agreed. The Kingdom of East Francia was an elective monarchy. Sure, 
The ruling king could force through the election of his son, as had happened several times before, but a second cousin? That was a different matter. Multiple candidates threw their hats in the ring. These included the Duke of Swabia, Otto von Worms, and the son of Hermann Billung, Bernhard Billung, who was now Duke of Saxony. Within Saxony there was, however, an even more ambitious man, Count Eckerhard of Meissen. He was a celebrated warrior. His most famous feat was the storming of the Castel San Angelo in Rome in 998. We know him for keeping control of the Slavs east of Meissen, taming the Duke of Bohemia and commanding the respect of Boleslav the Brave of Poland. His fame was such that he was recognized by many as Duke of Thuringia, a title that had been out of use for 200 years. He may not have any royal blood, but he's definitely on the list. Duke Henry of Bavaria was nothing if not an astute and ruthless politician. He managed to get hold of the imperial regalia, which were a precondition for a valid coronation. To do that, he had the Bishop of Augsburg taken hostage, which, given his family's reputation for blinding bishops, was enough to make the bishop's brother handing over the all-important Holy Lance. And that bishop was also the Archbishop of Cologne, which gives him access to the coronation church in Aachen another important building block in the road to kingship. What he needed now was some sort of quorum for an election. Meanwhile in Saxony the major nobles of the duchy had come together to discuss the succession. There was no consensus amongst the Saxons on who they wanted as the new king. They were treated well under the Ottonians who still saw themselves as Saxons and they ideally wanted their privileged status to remain as is. But there was no natural candidate for that policy. Henry was not seen as a Saxon, despite his heritage. His family had been Duke's Bavaria for three generations, and worse, Henry II had run a tight ship in Bavaria, which got the Saxons worried he might suppress their ancient rights and privileges. Some supported the Duke of Swabia, the Duke of Saxony had also put his hat in the ring, and then there was Eckhard of Meissen, who was a Saxon, but he was not universally loved in the duchy. So, in the first instance, the Saxon nobles agreed to recognize no one, and all attendees, apart from Eckhart, swore not to support any candidate unless they had all agreed. One Saxon noble, Luthard, however, had a firm view that Eckhart should not become king under any circumstances. He headed in for Eckhart because of some slight relating to a marriage proposal so he travelled down to Bavaria to discuss next steps with Henry. These two came up with a plan. They would send two abbesses, Matilda and Sophie, a sister and an aunt of Otto III, to plead Henry's case in front of the Saxon nobles. These Ottonian abbesses are not to be underestimated. These ladies ruled abbeys that were extraordinarily rich and could raise significant contingents of soldiers. But more importantly, they combined the imperial and sacred status. Several of their predecessors had become saints after their death, others had been regents during the absences of Otto II and Otto III. So when the abbesses showed up at the gathering of the Saxon magnates, they were initially treated with all the honours becoming their status. But after they had made their mission clear, Eckhart and his supporters stopped being nice. They sent the ladies up to their room without dinner and took their place at the feast. That was worse than impolite, it was a mistake. You cannot treat the imperial ladies like that. His fellow Saxons were so wound up by that snub, Eckhart was made to leave the gathering with his prospects now much diminished. 
he headed for Aachen where Otto III's body was to be buried and where in all likelihood a royal assembly would gather to elect a new king. En route to Aachen, Eckhard stayed at the Pfalz in Pölde. In the night, four armed men attack his sleeping quarters. They enter the antechamber and kill two of his attendants. Eckhard wakes up and tries to raise his guards by making a fire and opening the window. All that does is alert the attackers to his whereabouts. They break down the door, kill more of his knights and finally one throws a javelin that brings the mighty warrior down. When he lies on the ground the assailants pile in, cut off his head and gruesomely mutilate his body before retreating. That crime shocked his contemporaries and raised many questions. The assailants claimed it was revenge for the mistreatment of the imperial ladies at the dinner. There was also some blood feud going on between Eckhard and one of his assailants. But some things point to Henry as well. The assailants were relatives of Henry's wife Kunigunde, of which admittedly there were many. Now, I do not want to point the finger at anyone here, but it smells a bit off. Killing Eckhard created not just a moral but also a military problem. Eckhard and his reputation as an invincible warrior had been key to holding down the Slavic tribes around Meissen and keeping the Dukes of Bohemia in line. Eckhard also maintained great relations with Boleslav the Brave of Poland. With his death, that whole power balance collapsed, adding another big headache to whoever would become king. With Eckhard out of the way, Henry outfoxed the Duke of Swabia, managed to rustle up enough magnates to call it a quorum for an election, got the Archbishop of Mainz to crown him. All that had happened without any involvement of Saxons, though. Hence, the magnates of Saxony met for the third time to discuss the succession, this time in Merseburg. Henry appeared in person wearing the royal robes and crown, thereby indicating that he did not come for election but for allegiance. The Saxons yielded but only after having secured their ancient rights and privileged access to the king. Henry received another, this time only a ceremonial coronation. And then Henry and his wife moved on from there to Paderborn, which is still in Saxony. Here his wife Kunigunde was formally crowned, which is another faint attempt by the Saxons to retain the right to determine who is king and queen of the land. But we are now off on the wrong foot. The close link between the imperial family and Saxony is broken. Which gets me to the third topic I wanted to cover in this episode. The great Saxon nobles, the Duke Bernard and Eckhart of Meissen, had operated very much in line with the policy of Otto III, meaning they maintained close relationships with the Christian Duke of Poland, Boleslav the Brave, whose land were even further east. Following the Great Slavic Uprising of 983, the military strategy was to attack the Slavs from both sides, the Germans coming from the west and the Poles coming from the east. This close cooperation was underpinned further when Otto III did his famous pilgrimage to Gniezno in Poland, where he may or may not have crowned Boleslav as king of the Poles. Eckhard, as one of the leaders of the German armies in the east, had developed close family ties with Boleslav, namely his brother Gunzelin had married Boleslav's sister. When Eckhart was killed and Henry II was hurtling towards his coronation, his march of Meissen became a power vacuum. Boleslav the Brave saw the opportunity and jumped in. Boleslav had been keen on Meissen and Lusatia for a long time. Within days, Boleslav had taken hold of Lusatia and the town of Meissen, helped by his brother-in-law, Gunzelin. Sorry, I love saying Gunzelin. What a brilliant name. Boleslav defended his takeover by saying that he acted on Henry II's behalf, 
securing the vacant county against his enemies, whatever these enemies were. Boleslav came to meet Henry II in Merseburg, and Boleslav hoped to keep hold of all the lands he had just occupied, and in particular wanted to be invested as Markgraf of Meissen. Henry II was not prepared to go all that far. He gave him presents and let him have part of the Mark of Lusatia. The compromise over the county and city of Meissen was that it went to Gunzelin, Boleslav's brother-in-law and at this point his strong supporter. Not everything he wanted, but more than good enough. Now what happens next is disputed. As Boleslav departed from Merseburg, he and his entourage are getting ambushed by an unidentified group of knights. Boleslav gets severely injured in the melee and just about gets away with his life. The only reason he survived was that the Duke of Saxony himself, Bernhard, was also a supporter of Otto III's policy of friendship with Poland and a relative of Boleslav had intervened. Did Henry order the ambush? Boleslav definitely believed that to be true and on his way home sacked the town of Strela to make his point. The German chronicler Tietmar of Merseburg explicitly said that it happened without Henry's knowledge. Tietmar suggests the attackers had to defend the honour of the king since Boleslav and his men had refused to leave their weapons at the door when they had come into his presence. Now, there might be no evidence of Henry II's involvement, but whoever attacked Boleslav would not have dared doing that against the will of the king, and the king did not identify and punish the perpetrators. It all does not look like an act of a friend and ally. And that raises the question why Henry II reverted the policy of close friendship and coordination with Poland that all previous Ottonian emperors had supported, and that the magnates of Saxony were still very much supporting. The fact that Boleslav had stood with Eckhart von Meissen in his bid for kingship is unlikely to be a reason for a deep rift between the two rulers. Henry II was perfectly happy to work with Heribert of Cologne, who had actively promoted the candidacy of the Duke of Swabia. Henry II's bigger concern was the emergence of a hugely powerful new polity on his eastern frontier. Under Boleslav, Poland had become an increasingly coherent state, was expanding northwards and eastwards, and the meeting of Gniezno had shown that the ruler of Poland had large resources at his disposal. That concern of rising Polish power increased further due to the instability in neighbouring Bohemia. In 999, another Boleslas, Boleslas III, called the Red, had become Duke of Bohemia. He was a weak ruler who quickly got into conflict with his stepbrothers, Jaromir and Ulrich. Boleslas III had Jaromir castrated and the two brothers fled into exile at the court of Henry II in Bavaria. Before Henry II could intervene on their behalf, Boleslas III in turn was deposed by a certain Vlodove, a relative of the ducal family. Boleslas III now fled to his relative, Boleslav the Brave of Poland. The usurper Vlodove died a few months later, allegedly because he could not go an hour without a drink. Now, at that point, the two exiled brothers returned, with Jaromir, the castrated one, being made duke. That lasted a few months before then Boleslav III returned, with support of Boleslav the Brave. After the Polish Boleslav had returned home, the Bohemian Boleslavs invited all the major nobles of the duchy to dinner and, since they had supported either Vlodove or Jaromir or were otherwise irritating, had them all killed. That did not go down well with his people and they called on Polish Boleslav for help. Polish Boleslav then lured Bohemian Boleslav into a trap and had him blinded and imprisoned. 
than Boleslav the Brave made himself Duke of Bohemia. If that was not enough, Boleslav the Brave was strengthening his relationship with the Saxon magnates, including by marrying the daughter of Hermann, the son of Margrave Eckhart. That gradually turned into a broader alliance of friends of Boleslav that even included the Duke of Saxony himself. Bohemia, which was part of the empire under the control of an already exceedingly powerful Duke of Poland, would have been unacceptable, even if the Duke of Poland had been a faithful vassal, and a faithful vassal he clearly was not. War had become inevitable. The area Henry II had to defend against the potential Polish attack stretched pretty much the full length of today's Germany, from Hamburg in the far north to Passau in the far south. Moreover, the friends of Boleslav controlled most of the northern end of that border. They may not fight the king directly, but they would pass on information to Boleslav and hold back their troops. The only people Henry could trust in this conflict were the bishops and his Bavarians. In that situation, Henry II did something very, very unexpected. Henry II went into an alliance with the Liuzzi, the federation of pagan Slavic tribes who lived in what's today Brandenburg and Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. These people have been defending their way of life against Saxon incursions since at least the 920s. Henry II is otherwise very much a Christian ruler who derives his authority from God directly. Him allying with pagans upset a lot of people, not least the missionaries like Bruno of Querford, who wrote a very unusual letter of complaint to his theocratic ruler. Despite being unable to rely on the battle-hardened Saxons and morally in the wrong, the initial campaign was successful. Henry expelled Boleslav from Prague by circumventing the Poles' major forces and put Jaromir back on the ducal throne. In a next step, he confronted Boleslav at the place called Krossen, where Boleslav had to flee, leaving a lot of his train behind, but without much loss of actual soldiers. Henry II progressed further into Poland and besieged Poznan, one of the major towns. But in the end, he could not take it, and with his army weakened by hunger and disease, the two sides concluded a peace agreement in 1005. This process would repeat itself several times over the next 13 years. Henry II would build up his forces, invade Poland, get stuck in the vast territory, finally agreed a truce. That truce would last exactly as long as it took Henry to gather new forces to make another run at it. One problem was that Boleslav was extremely well informed about what went on in Germany, thanks to his network of supporters in the highest ranks of society. Every one of Henry's moves, Boleslav could counter, and when that failed, he just disappeared into the depths of Poland, where Henry's army would falter. As time went by, Henry began to gradually replace unreliable counts and margraves along the border. Namely, our friend Gunzelin, the brother-in-law of Boleslav, was removed as the margrave of the crucial Mark of Meissen. His successor was Hermann, the oldest son of the murdered Eckhart. Gunzelin and Hermann then entered into a feud that even contemporaries would regard as extremely brutal. Henry also tried to strengthen the power of the bishops in Saxony by handing them more and more resources. They were given not just land and privileges, but whole counties. He, amongst other things, recreated the bishopric of Merseburg, resolving an issue that had been undermining royal authority for the last 25 years. In 1013, both sides became preoccupied with different things and made an attempt at a more lasting peace. Boleslav promised to be a faithful vassal of King Henry in exchange for being allowed to keep hold of what he had acquired, i.e. Lusatia, Silesia and some other parts of Bohemia Jaromir had been unable to recapture. 
but that did not work either. Boleslav failed to send troops for Henry's campaign to Rome, which made him an unfaithful vassal. Henry invited Boleslav to a royal assembly in Merseburg to witness the submission of other unruly vassals before the emperor. That involved kneeling barefoot in front of him, wearing a hair shirt. To Henry's surprise, the proud Duke of Poland did not fancy that, and hostilities resumed. After another three-year campaign that was fought brutally across Poland, eastern Germany and Bohemia, Henry realized that he could not beat Boleslav. The two parties concluded a peace agreement signed at the castle of Bautzen, a final humiliation for Henry since Bautzen was on imperial territory. Henry did not even bother to attend the ceremony. Boleslav had won almost everything he set out again, except for Meissen itself and the core duchy of Bohemia. That, together with his success against the Kievan Rus, almost doubled the size of his realm. In the mind of many historians, Boleslav and his father Mieszko I were the founders of Poland, turning a loose federation of independent groups into a coherent, powerful state that was now largely independent from the empire. As a last act, in the period of uncertainty after Henry II's death, Boleslav had himself crowned King of Poland, a process that had begun 25 years earlier with the Act of Gniezno, when Otto III may, or may not, have put his imperial diadem on Boleslav's head. If we look at the reign of Henry II, something has fundamentally changed in the relationship between the Saxons and the Empire. Until now, Saxony was the heartland of the imperial family. Its rulers had been their men, and they had chosen who succeeds. That was no longer the case at the death of Henry II. Moreover, imperial policy and Saxon policy were no longer in sync. There was now a rift between the Saxon magnates and their interests and the imperial interests on the other side. This rift will only deepen under the next two rulers, Conrad II and Henry III, something we'll look at next week. I hope you'll join us again. And in the meantime, if you want to hear more about the tumultuous rise of Henry II to the throne, check out or listen again to episode 17. And if you want to hear more about the history of the Danes, go to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It's thanks to you this show does not have to do advertising for products you do not want to hear about. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others, hence bring in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>